Thank you, that was lovely. Good morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 6, which is where we'll be today. Great to see each week more and more faces, and definitely appreciate everyone continuing to, to keep every other row empty, and uh, it's good. It's, it's so great to see um, people coming coming back, and I knew I knew everyone would, but it's just, it's, it's great, to, great to see, and I don't know, I only speak for myself, I know from the news over the last couple of months, I, I hate the phrase, new normal. It just grates against me. John chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15 today. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, there is none like you. You are ultimate and superlative in your greatness, majesty, and goodness. We come before you again to praise your great name. Lord, you are sovereign over history and everything that has happened this year is part of your divine plan. And the times we were tempted to feel frustrated or to question, let us go to you as the final answer. And on certain times, Lord, may we praise you that we can be certain that you were good. Lord, we continue to pray for communities across this nation which have been rocked by division and violence in recent weeks. Lord, there is only one true source of hope and peace for our world. That is your son, Jesus Christ, and the gospel. And we continue to pray for churches across this nation to do the work of evangelists, Lord, and to share this message. And we pray that we, too, would have a role as one of your churches among thousands in preaching your gospel and teaching your word. Lord, may we reach people in this community. May we have a burden for our neighbors. May the field be ripe for harvest. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we look at another one of the signs that Jesus does during his ministry when he feeds multitudes. 
He has a small amount of bread and fish and performs a miracle where he takes those elements and feeds thousands of people. Fun fact, is the only miracle in the ministry of Jesus that is found in all four Gospels. As we begin this morning, I want to briefly address what is perhaps the most important event in the life of God's people in the Old Testament, the Exodus. And I should say at the beginning that Richard Phillips has a commentary on John that I found especially helpful on this passage. In Exodus, God had chosen a man, Moses, to lead the Israelites from slavery. The slavery from Egypt into the land that God had promised. The Egyptians had refused to free the Israelites, and so God brings a series of plagues on Egypt which devastate their social life and economy. In spite of that, Pharaoh continues to not allow the Israelites to leave. In a final plague, God strikes down the firstborn throughout Egypt. But for the Israelites, they're instructed to sacrifice lambs and sprinkle the blood on the doors of their homes as an act of faith in the Lord's protection and also as an act of obedience to God's command. When God brought judgment, the Israelites' homes were passed over, and that is the origin of the first Jewish holy day, holiday of Passover, celebrated every spring, even today, by observant Jews. Future Passovers were celebrated. In remembrance, lambs were still sacrificed. Another important part of the Passover celebration for observant Jews was a commemorative meal, which included lamb, unleavened bread, and other symbolic elements which pointed the people to what God had done on the first Passover. I bring all of these up because there is resonance with that in our passage this morning. We're entering a section of John where we'll see several themes in chapters 6 through 8 which point back to the Exodus. Throughout John, we've seen this theme of newness in the ministry of Jesus. From the opening section... We see that Jesus brings a new creation into the world. When Jesus turns water into wine, the new wine is a symbol of a new covenant which Jesus came to bring. When Jesus talks to Nicodemus and talks of being born again, Jesus teaches of the new life that God gives believers. And so it should be no surprise that John's gospel points to the ministry of Jesus as a new exodus. And a final thought before we begin in our passage is to remember where last week's passage left off. Chapter 5 ends with Jesus pointing the Pharisees to Moses and his writings which pointed to him. Jesus says in John 5, verses 45 to 47, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And that wraps up Jesus' speech to the Pharisees, but it also serves as an appropriate lead-in to our section today as Jesus shows himself to be the greater Moses who leads the greater Exodus. And that new Exodus, again, chapters 6 through 8, 
begins with Jesus feeding the multitudes. And with that, we'll jump into our section today, and we're going to look at it in three scenes, a setting, a conflict, and a resolution. So, first scene, the setting, going back to the passage, we'll look at starting out verses 1 and 2. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. John begins by showing the passage of time between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. And so he opens up after this. We don't know specifically how much time has passed. John also moves the story geographically from chapter 5, which had been in Jerusalem, to now we're in Galilee. And Jesus is near the Sea of Galilee. By the way, another fun fact, the Sea of Galilee is called a sea even though it's actually a lake. But we'll talk about that more next week when Jesus walks on water. Given the geographical markers in this story between the four Gospels, they're probably on the northeast side of the lake. If you're somebody who follows the news closely, you might have heard stories before in Israel referring to a region called the Golan Heights. It's a disputed region between Israel and Syria today. This is the region where Jesus is probably speaking here. Verse 2 mentions that a large crowd was following Jesus, having seen the signs that he was doing. And as we'll later learn in this passage, it's a very large crowd. Thousands of people are following Jesus. However, they're not all necessarily following Jesus because they want to be his disciples or want to believe in him as the Messiah. But rather, as verse 2 tells us, the crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They're drawn to the miracles that Jesus is doing. Verses 3 and 4. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. I've already talked about the Exodus theme in this story. It's interesting that John says that Jesus is on the mountain. It's impossible to know what mountain he's referring to. They're in the hill country. And so when John talks about Jesus going up to the mountain, it seems like it's less about tying Jesus to a specific mountain and more about making an allusion between the Old and New Testaments. As Moses went up on Mount Sinai and was given the Ten Commandments, Jesus is on a mountain here bringing a new Passover and a new exodus to the people of God. Verse 4, John mentions that it's the Passover. He mentions three different Passovers in this gospel, and this is the second one. So again, we have a specific tie to a time and place. And the fact that it was Passover might explain why there was such a large crowd following Jesus, as Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire would have been traveling at this time. Now, in first century Galilee, Passover could be a politically charged time of year. It was common to look at the Exodus, where God had freed the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, and to have a similar longing of being freed from Roman government and influence. So that's the setting of this event. Second scene, we see the conflict, beginning in verse 5. It says... Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, 
Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus sees the crowd. They've come to hear him, to see his signs. But Jesus is also aware that they're going to need food. Keep in mind, it's the first century. It's not like they have a McDonald's nearby or they can just go to Luke's and pick up a pizza. How are they going to feed these people? And so Jesus asks Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And what he's doing is he's testing Philip. The crowd has seen the signs that Jesus is doing, but so have the disciples. They've traveled and interacted with Jesus. Will Philip look at this situation and believe that there's something that Jesus can do about it? Jesus ultimately knows what he's going to do. The following verse tells us that, where it says, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus isn't being deceptive or deceitful. He's asking Philip again to see what he'll say. Philip sees the large crowd, sees the thousands of people, and he's overwhelmed by the size of the audience. It doesn't occur to him that Jesus can do something. The disciples didn't have much to offer. They didn't have much to bring to the table. But ultimately, in our lives, it's not about what we have to offer that ultimately matters. It's about what God can do. We don't have enough on our own. But God blesses, and he provides. Maybe you think about your marriage, and trying to love your spouse, or your kids, and trying to raise them up to know the Lord, or co-workers, and wanting to be a good witness for them. Maybe really trying to live as a witness to your faith. But then maybe sometimes you have times where you feel inadequate, or where you know you don't live up, where you question what you're doing. In all of those things, what matters is to continue being faithful to the Lord. Because we ultimately can't control the circumstances in our lives. We can't control the the fruit of what we do. All that we can do is bring what we have before the Lord. Our talents, our abilities. And it is God who uses that. That's not to say that we should be apathetic. We should care. But when we feel like we don't quite measure up, like we don't quite have enough, let us take joy that there is grace. Let us trust in the Lord to accomplish his purposes through us, even as imperfect as we are. Let us serve the Lord and bring what we have before him to use to bring him glory and to serve him. In verse 7, Philip resorts to purely, a purely naturalistic explanation for their situation. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. A denarius was a Roman coin. It was about the amount of money that a person could make for a day's work. And so Philip is saying that 200 denarii, 200 days wages, about seven months, a substantial amount of money to the average person, that that would not be enough to give this huge crowd even a little bit of food. Verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? 
So Andrew finds a kid who has some food, five barley loaves. Barley bread was the inexpensive bread of common people back then. It's a small amount of bread relative to the size of the crowd. And so he asks, what are they for so many? Andrew has the same issue as Philip. He's just looking at what they have and perceiving that it's not enough. For Philip, he talks about the financial issues, that they don't have enough money to feed this many people. Andrew looks at it as an issue of quantity, that they don't have enough food to feed these people. We have times where we see God work, where we see him work in our own lives and in the lives of others. We hear wonderful testimonies of the things that God has done. Again, for the apostles and this crowd, they've seen the signs that Jesus is doing. They've seen the power that he's displayed. He's healed from a distance. He's turned water into wine. But it's still so often so easy to forget all that God has done and to forget what he can do. We can so easily fall into the trap of just assuming that God will be inactive in a situation. Take a look at your own life, your own story, and really think about the graces that God has shown, the times that he saved you or spared you, the times where you could have gone down a wrong path, the times where you didn't see any way out, but here you are. God is good. He continues to work in our lives and in our circumstances. Let us be people who remember the goodness God has shown and who live in faith and confidence in God's goodness. As always, that is not to say that God is our genie or that he does whatever we want him to do. He is the sovereign Lord. And so we see the issue. We come to our third scene. The resolution, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. It's interesting that Jesus says, have the people sit down. And then the verse ends by saying that there were 5,000 men. Most scholars believe that Wives and children were also along in this group. So if it's 5,000 men, it could be 10,000, 20,000 people or more. Jesus has them split into groups. The other gospel accounts say that they were divided into groups of 50s and 100s. Dividing the people into groups is probably, again, an allusion to Moses dividing the Israelite tribes when they left Egypt. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Giving thanks for the food would have been a standard practice. And then Jesus distributes the food. During the Exodus, the Israelites were fed manna from heaven, which the Lord provided. God gave the people what they needed. They were told to collect 
was necessary for that day's nourishment. But in our passage in verse 11, it says that the people had as much fish as they wanted, that God has provided abundantly. In the Old Testament, Moses prayed to God on behalf of the Israelites. In this passage, Jesus himself takes the bread and provides enough for the multitudes. Moses had to intercede. Jesus himself provides. The verse says that the people had as much fish as they wanted. And then it says that Jesus has provided so abundantly for the multitudes of people, so much that they have leftovers. Verses 12 and 13. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus has abundantly provided, but he will let nothing go to waste. And so the disciples gather up the uneaten food. Five loaves and two fish has been made into so much food that it's even more than what was needed for these thousands of people. They collect 12 baskets full of leftovers. They have more leftovers than what they began with. All four Gospels mention 12 baskets. As thought that the 12 baskets are symbolic of Jesus giving provision to the 12 tribes of Israel. Final two verses of the passage, we see the response to the miracle which Jesus has done. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. That's significant. Remember what I quoted earlier this morning where we left off last week in John chapter 5. To quote from verse 46, Jesus says, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And then that leads directly into this miracle. He tells the Pharisees that Moses wrote of him. And people see the miracle and they say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They're not simply suggesting that Jesus is a prophet. They're saying that Jesus is the prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses points to a future prophet who would be greater than he. To quote from verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. The miraculous sign which the Lord Jesus has done in the wilderness in providing the bread, it clearly makes the people think to Moses. Some see it in fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy, Jesus feeding the multitudes, and their lives is extremely meaningful and impactful. In Luke's account of this event, after Peter sees this miracle, Jesus interacts with Peter, and he asks him, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. This event was meaningful. And so they see what Jesus has done. And they think that Jesus is the prophet. In the first century, there were some who believed this prophet would be the Messiah. But they're only partially correct, as we'll see at the end of the passage. Verse 15. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Again, there were sentiments of insurrection in the community. Jesus has a small army following him. Carrie and I have been watching a show called Poldark. It's set in the late 1700s. And in one of the episodes, several people who are loyal to the main character, Poldark, plan to burn down the estate of one of his rivals. But Poldark doesn't want them to do this. Certainly, he doesn't want them to do this on his behalf. And so he actually has to intervene personally to stop this riot that he never asked for. For these people to whom Jesus is speaking, if they have their hearts set on Jesus becoming king, they too could be apt to lead an uprising against their local Roman authorities. But that is not the kingdom that Jesus came to usher in. Indeed, Jesus is a king. But Jesus did not come to bring a kingdom through military or political conquest. He came to bring his kingdom through dying and rising from the dead. The crowd was right. Jesus is the ultimate prophet of whom Moses wrote. But he's more than a prophet. And he is a king. But he's more than a king. He is the king of kings. In the first exodus, the Israelites were freed from oppression under Egyptian authority and a new life in the promised land. In the new exodus, Jesus came to bring freedom from the penalty of sin and eternal life with him in heaven. So since Jesus will not build his kingdom on humanity's terms, he goes further up the mountain. The signs that Jesus does point to a deeper reality beyond itself. This passage is not primarily a story about bread. It's primarily a story about the gospel. We've seen throughout the passage that it alludes to the Passover and the Exodus. We've seen that from the time of year when the miracle happened. The original Passover meal was eaten by the Israelites who had left Egypt in haste. They were pilgrims going into the desert in pursuit of God's promised land. Here, Jesus is presiding over a new assembly of Israelites who are again in a rural area, a new wilderness, hearing the Christ authoritatively proclaiming the word of God. We see it in Jesus providing food for the people. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, God provided manna from heaven. As with the manna, God provided what people needed. But as I said, it's not primarily a story about bread. It's a miraculous sign that displays the power of Christ to hungry people and is meant to point beyond that to the gospel of Christ and to those who are spiritually hungry and need sustenance which only Jesus provides. Jesus came to fulfill the hunger of the human soul for a savior and deliverer, and all who come to him, he will nourish with the gospel of salvation. On that Passover, Jesus provided the greater manna because he would become the greater Passover lamb who was without blemish and led to slaughter, the lamb whose blood was shed for the redemption of God's people. 
And because he is the greater lamb, he is also the greater redeemer of Israel, the greater Moses who leads people into the promised land. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may we rejoice in your gospel. Lord, that you have made a way for forgiveness of sinful people in a fallen world, that there is grace when we turn to you and believe in you, Lord, in the work that you have done in having lived a perfect life and died an unjust death so that sinful people can be forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.